Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance aho. Tonight we are celebrating the winners of the 2019 Prime Minister's Science Prizes. Congratulations to all the winners. The prizes were awarded this year in an online ceremony after the original award event was postponed due to the COVID-19 lockdown. The 2019 Prime Minister's Science Prize is New Zealand's premier award for science and it's given for science that is transformational in its impact and it's worth half a million dollars. It's been awarded to the Melting Ice and Rising Seas team, a group of more than 20 geologists, glaciologists, climate and social scientists from Teherenga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, as well as GNS Science and Niwa and the team is led by the university's Antarctic Research Centre. The scientists are behind the breakthrough discovery that Antarctica's ice sheets melted rapidly in the past and could have a significant impact on global sea level rise over the next 80 years. I catch up with a few members of the team and we'll chat first with geologists Tim Nash and Robert Mackay. I begin by asking Tim what he does. The last 20 years I've been a geologist. I've been looking at the rocks which record Earth's past climate. And one of the things I've been, you know, spending a lot of time is looking at past sea level. So I've been interested in reconstructing past global sea level change. And that was, you know, about 20 years ago and then about 10 years ago, I got the opportunity to go to Antarctica. Maybe it's a bit longer than that, maybe it's 15 years ago. Um, and so a chance to go to the engine room of where these sea level changes were coming from. So for me it's always been about using the rocks either to understand how sea level has changed or by drilling around the Antarctic margin how the Antarctic ice sheet has changed through time and particularly during periods of past warmth which are relevant to the world we're heading towards with global warming. How do rocks and well, particularly how does sediment hold a record of climate change? Wonderfully, Alison. Sediments are, are a wonderful archive. Sediments on the ocean floor in many places accumulate continuously over millions of years. So they can record information about the environment, about how warm the ocean was. Pollen gets blown out there. You can reconstruct what was on land. We can use very clever techniques to even reconstruct how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere. And when you're close to an ice sheet, the sediments will record the passage of that ice sheet when it grows and expands and 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 pushes right out onto the continental shelf and when it retreats again and becomes very small so even though we get erosion when ice sheets do that we get this very important record of what the ice sheets have done and particularly when they've retreated during past periods of warmth 
So past periods, what are we talking about? Millions of years? Tens of millions of years? Yeah, tens of millions of years. But one of the times that's very interesting to us is only three million years ago, and this was known as the Pliocene Warm Period. And this is the last time Earth had the same amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere that we have today. So we have 400 parts per million carbon dioxide today. The last time our world had that level of carbon dioxide was the Pliocene warm period three million years ago. So the question we asked, well, what happened to the Antarctic ice sheet when you put that much CO2 in the atmosphere? And what did happen? Uh, West Antarctica went away. Bits of East Antarctica went away. And global sea level was up to 20 metres higher. So if you leave that level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that's the end game. That's what we're committing the planet to. That's a very sobering thought. It is, and it's one of the things that really underpins this prize. Our group did some of this pioneering research, and then others like climate modellers and physicists said, yikes, we need to test our models back in the past to make sure they're working properly. These are the same models they're using to predict future behaviour of the ice sheet. So we've been using this past evidence, these past experiments that are natural, to test the ice sheet models and the climate models that we're now using to make better predictions of sea level rise in the future. So this sounds like a big jigsaw puzzle when it's got geologists and modellers and climate people and ice people in it. Where do you fit in, Rob? I was a student on the first project to drill underneath the ice sheet to see that it, it did indeed go away three million years ago. So the questions that have really sort of been stimulated since then is, is why did it go away? We know globally it might have been two to three degrees warmer, but we're seeing much warmer waters in the Ross Sea, the area that we were drilling, during those collapse events. And so we're trying to understand how do those warm waters get into the pole? Why do we have more warming at the poles than we do globally? And we think that's related to changes in the ocean currents. And so increasingly over the last 10 years, we've been going further offshore into the deeper waters off the edge of Antarctica to see how those warm waters got there and um, what were the thresholds to actually drive retreat. Because it actually... Some of these records indicate we might have actually had retreated as recently as 120,000 years ago, when globally it was only 1 to 2 degrees warmer. So we're really trying to understand what is the threshold to lose significant amount of ice. We don't think we lost as much as we did 3 million years ago, but it might have been 6 metres of sea level rise. So there's still um, large questions to answer in terms of how much warming does it take to significantly alter our polar regions. So when you talk about going further offshore, is this working from boats and doing sediment cores from a boat? Yes, that's correct. So the original project I came, came to work with in the ARC was working on the Andrel drill rig, which was drilling through an ice shelf. So that's a floating ice shelf that's about 80 metres thick. It was a nice, stable drilling platform. Um, to get further offshore, we have to use drill ships. Um, so the same sort of things that, rather ironically, the oil industry would use. Um, but we're using that for scientific discovery, trying to understand the basic mechanics of how the planet works. So you have to deal with much larger waves. The conditions are far more difficult to work with, um, floating sea ice, icebergs. So there's a lot more risk to it. But, yeah, the rewards are quite, quite amazing when you actually get the sediment out of the ground and you can get this amazing archive of, of ocean temperature and even how the biological response was to changing ice sheets over time, changing sea ice, because that's an important part of what regulates the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. But one of the things I'm taking from what you're saying is that we tend to talk about averages of climate change, so 
maybe we're going to get one or two degrees of warming, and then we think about that. That doesn't have even effects across the planet, is what you're saying. So it seems like the poles are particularly vulnerable. Poles are vulnerable. New Zealand's quite vulnerable to it as well. We sit on that um, interface between the poles and the equator. We're right on the edge of what we call the subtropical front, which is the difference between Antarctic and tropical waters. And we see that quite regularly, even on, on annual timescales in New Zealand. We had the marine heat wave in the Tasman Sea a few years ago. That's a change in ocean currents that dramatically affect water temperatures offshore in New Zealand, and it'll affect the biological systems that live in those, those areas as well in terms of delivering nutrients by those ocean currents. So it has quite wide-ranging effects, um, the most obvious one being the sea level. That's one we can most tangibly reconstruct in the geological past. But we're trying to look at that more complicated system of how do the poles affect places like New Zealand that, that lie in that, that sort of gateway between the equator and the poles. So this is very much as your proposal for the Prime Minister's Science Prize says, you know, it started with melting ice, but now it's rising sea levels. Absolutely, and that's a nice segue with what Rob just said about the, the regional impacts. And so part of what the team does is focus on, well, what does this mean for New Zealand? If the Antarctic ice sheet is melting faster than we thought, what does that mean regionally for New Zealand? But for sea level rise, of course, we have to consider the Greenland ice sheet, the glaciers, the Antarctic ice sheet and the, the heating of the ocean. So we have a research program called New Zealand Sea Rise, which Richard Levy, one of our team members, leads. And that program is taking the latest information we're producing in Antarctica from our models, along with all the other global information, and helping to uh, improve predictions of sea level rise around New Zealand. Of course, New Zealand's not a very stable place. It goes up and down. Um, that's because we sit on an active tectonic plate boundary, so we have earthquakes, as we all know, and in, in places the land is just always subsiding or the land is always rising. So if the land's rising and sea level's rising, well, well, that's quite good. You're quite lucky if you live in one of those places on the coastline, but if the land is subsiding like the lower North Island is doing, at the same rate sea level is rising, but in the opposite direction, you double the whammy, you double the sea level rise. So for us, it's really important to build in local vertical land movements. That's what we're focused on with some of this research in the New Zealand Sea Rise Program. So that local authorities, regional councils, decision makers have a location-specific understanding of what sea level is likely to do in the future so they can manage it in their district plans and their adaptation options. And that's really... The full science value chain the team represents, right, we go from the quite fundamental discovery-led stuff around Antarctica and how the climate system works, right down to rubber hits the road, what does this mean for New Zealand and how do we better prepare and anticipate for the impacts of climate change? So winning the Prime Minister's Science Prize, what's it going to mean to you as a researcher? I don't know, Alison. I mean, we're obviously very honoured, and I'm thrilled for the team because this is no one individual could have pulled this off. This is this is a number of people. For me personally, I guess I look back and reflect on what we've built, and I feel very proud of it and, and the fact that it's making a difference in New Zealand. I hope this isn't one of these sunset prizes. You give old people when they've done enough and say thank you very much. I still feel very um, motivated and, and keen to continue, so I think it'll give me a lot of motivation. Um, to continue and uh, do great science for New Zealand. This is actually my second award. I was the emerging scientist well, almost seven or eight years ago. So 
What's nice about this award is it's actually a team award. Um, last time I got a, a sort of individual recognition out of this award, but at the time I really did feel like there was a team behind that. Um, I was part of this big drilling project um, that sort of was really groundbreaking internationally. So I was kind of embarrassed to take all the all the credit for it and the sort of very public profile. So the recognition as a, as a team is really, really quite rewarding for me. And as Tim said, what these awards do is they actually motivate you further. There's no chance to rest in your laurels. You have higher expectations of yourself and people have higher expectations of you. So I think it'll actually really motivate us to, to actually go forward and really build on the work that we've already done over the last decade. Thanks. There was Tim Nash and Robert Mackay, and they are both at Victoria University of Wellington's Antarctic Research Centre. The next prize-winning team members I talked to are Nick Gollidge and Nancy Bertler. My work focuses in particular on taking ice cores from coastal regions of Antarctica and interpreting them to understand climate um, interactions in the past, in particular how the climate influenced the ocean, the ice sheet, and the atmospheric circulation pattern. So where have you been getting these ice cores from in Antarctica? So I worked predominantly in the Rossi region, the New Zealand area, along the coastlines where these ice cores are particularly sensitive to where we see how the ocean and the ice sheets interact. And what kind of things were you finding? I mean, one thing that really surprised us when we started that work was that the tropics were really important and how they influenced that region on very short time scales, and that where we were expecting to see warming could actually turn into a cooling simply because it was overprinted by a tropical um, influence for a decade or so. Another really important part was when we started looking at um, a longer ice core record where we could actually look at the deglaciations or a time where the ice sheet um, responded really quickly, we could see that the Rossi region was an area that really responded very sensitively and quickly to this change, contributing and responding in a way that we wouldn't have anticipated before. And Nick, what's your area and what have you been doing for the last few years? My work revolves around numerical ice sheet modelling. So it's using computer models to simulate the behaviour of an ice sheet. Um, And most of the work we do obviously focuses on the Antarctic ice sheet, but we also look at the Greenland ice sheet as well. And a large part of the work that we do with the models is trying to ground those models with empirical data. So we go into the field, we go to Antarctica, we try and measure the behaviour of the ice sheet, essentially. So we'll use GPS units to, to track the flow of the ice. We also use uh, satellite products to figure out the velocity of the ice. And we can use techniques like radar to quantify how thick the ice is. So all these data go into um, constraining some of these numerical models. And the idea there is that we we use the observational data to make sure that our models are capturing the present day uh, as faithfully as we can. Once we have a model that we can rely on, um, then we can use it for the future projections. And that's the work that's obviously really policy relevant and societally relevant. So we try and use these models to look forward in time, sometimes just a century, sometimes longer, uh, looking at the long-term response of the ice sheet or looking at the decadal response, um, trying to understand how much these ice sheets might contribute to global sea level. So we've learned a lot in the last decade about what those ice sheets have been doing in the last few million years? We've learnt a lot about the dynamics of the ice sheets, for sure. One thing that's really surprised the glaciological community in the last sort of 10 to 20 years is just how dynamic an ice sheet like Antarctica can be. So we've sort of always had an idea... Classically, that a large ice sheet like uh, the Antarctic ice sheet is quite slow moving and, and flows pretty slowly 
on a sort of human time scales, but actually there are parts of it that can respond very, very quickly uh, in response to either an oceanic forcing or an atmospheric forcing. Uh, and that's kind of taking us by surprise a little bit, and it's forced us to develop models that can actually incorporate the processes by which those fast responses occur. So it's been a challenge, but we've learned a lot in the process. Tell me a bit about the two Antarctic ice sheets and how much water between them they lock up. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a huge lump of ice. If you melted the whole Antarctic ice sheet, you'd get about 60 metres of sea level equivalent, uh, which is, you know, kind of terrifying when you think about it, if we change the, the world's coastlines by that amount. Uh, but the vulnerable parts of Antarctica we think of mainly as West Antarctica, which gives us somewhere between three and a half and five metres, depending on how much of the, the ice above the sea surface melts. But then there are also parts of East Antarctica that sit below sea level as well, that um, they can be more vulnerable. And they could contribute another few metres easily, but a lot depends on time scale. So that's the, that's the real critical part, is understanding the time scale of the response. But the key thing is that in the next century or so, we're expecting maybe a few, a few centimetres to a few tens of centimetres from each of the ice sheets. So that's the, uh, the critical thing. But the, the, the takeaway from all the work that we've been doing, and not just ourselves but uh, globally, is that ice sheets uh, like the one in Antarctica tend to respond on such long timescales that even though you start to see an initial response quite quickly, that response goes on and on and on for hundreds, thousands of years. So although we'll only see maybe a few tens of centimetres sea level equivalent from Antarctica by the end of this century that contribution will be accelerating at the end of the century, so it will keep getting larger. So next century and the century after that, we'll see much, much higher sea levels as a result of the changes that we're putting in place now. One of the things, Nancy, that I think your work brings home, is, and you've already touched on that, is that connectedness, that we tend to think of Antarctica as this great stable thing at the bottom of the world that's disconnected from everywhere else, but that's far from the truth, isn't it? That's very right. So we were quite surprised when we initially sort of really understood the tropical connections and there's a lot more to understand yet. But I think what we um, tried to understand for a long time was the increase in sea ice around Antarctica, um, which seemed counterproductive to the idea of a warming um, world. And while there's still some questions around that, I think we're now understanding that that had something to do with the ozone hole, the change in the westerly winds that occurred which actually allowed stronger winds from the continent itself flowing northwards and pushing the sea ice out. So there are interactions that are so quite tricky um, to really get to the, to the um, bottom of those. And yet we have seen very strong changes in sea ice very recently, and we don't know if that's the new new, whether now the warming has caught up with it. The models still disagree on, on the actual forcing of it. But we know that the change in sea ice has very large implications of the change of the vulnerability of the ice shelves and with that, again, the, the flow of the ice sheet itself. So this is very relevant work, isn't it? It's utterly relevant, and models like those that Nick just discussed are really important because the changes that occurring right now... You know, we, we've thought of climate change as something that the next generation has to deal with, but really it's us right now. We have a few years to make some very significant changes to adhere to the Paris Agreement and to avoid some very, very dangerous um, consequences of climate change. And yet we don't even know if the Paris Agreement itself, as ambitious as it is, is a safe threshold. So the models that you're working on, Nick, 
how long do you think it will be before you're satisfied with them? Or is that one of those areas that the more data that you can plug into them, then the better their predictive abilities become? That's absolutely right. The more data we have to test the models, um, obviously the better they they get. But we're also learning a lot about the different um, physical processes that operate in in Antarctica, both in the ocean, the atmosphere, and within the ice sheet itself. So all these things have to be captured somehow. We have to put some equations into the model that will allow us to incorporate those processes. And so that's what the, the global community have been working pretty hard on since the last IPCC report. Um, And what we're seeing now in the run-up to the next uh, report is many more models working together in these these large international inter-comparison projects. So we have something like 20 different modeling groups around the world using very different models, uh, but all using the same climate forcings um, and using a range of climate forcings. And then we look at them statistically and we start to tease out the commonalities and we can say, well, we have a certain amount of confidence that the contribution from the ice sheet will be X, but we know that it will be within a much broader band with even greater confidence. So we can start to to sort of define the uncertainties a lot better. And that's a key part, I think, particularly for policymakers. So what's the significance of winning the Prime Minister's Science Prize? Obviously, it's hugely humbling to be recognised in that way. But I think for me personally, the biggest impact of that is that this work and the importance of us acting on climate change is clearly observed at the highest political level in New Zealand. And I think we can use the award, the the recognition of this work to have even greater impact with um, the public, with communities around New Zealand that we have to do something and we have to do it now. I think the visibility of this award is um, is one of the key things and, and just putting climate change front and centre in, in the public uh, is a really, really important thing. And, and it gives us, I think, some hope for the future that we'll be able to attract the better students to the university and, and to our uh, related institutes and, and bring those students up and, and, and get them on that path where they can be the ones making the, the next big advances. And I think that's kind of a really important part of this is sort of fostering that continuity. Thanks. There was Nancy Bertler and Nick Gollidge and they're both at Victoria University of Wellington's Antarctic Research Centre. The last person I catch up with from the team is Richard Levy from GNS Science. He's very involved with the Rising Seas part of the Melting Ice Rising Seas programme. So we've been looking at the long-term history of the Antarctic ice sheet, trying to see how it interacts with climate, going back 34 million years. What what does it do when the climate gets warm? How small does the ice sheet get? And what does that ultimately mean for sea level? And you're doing this through looking at sediment? Yeah, sediment core from collected from offshore. We recover these cores from beneath the seafloor and they tell us the story of the ice sheets when they were big and when they were small. And, and from that we link it to climate and try to come up with an understanding of drivers, forces, changes and, and consequences. And those ice sheets, they've been bigger than they are now, but they've also been much smaller than they are now? That's right. At times in the past they've been much bigger than they are today um, during episodes of of cold climate, glacial intervals, and then they've been much smaller than today during um, intervals of time when climate was much warmer. So that's what's happened in the past, and you're now taking that information and, in a sense, using it to look forward to what might happen in a warming world. So what do you think is going on at the moment? We know what's going on right at 
at the moment the ice sheets are melting. The, the modern observations are showing us that the ice sheets are actually losing mass, so that's a concern. How much they will shrink, how much sea level will go up as they get smaller in the future is, is a big open question. And in order to answer that question, we use models. Um, sort of our crystal balls in the science world are, are numerical models, and uh, we rely on these models to predict what will happen in the future. And we gain confidence in those models by looking back in the past and seeing if those computer simulations can actually replicate what we know happened in the past. If they can do that, we have much more confidence in their their forward-looking powers. And what those models are showing us, that if we keep tracking along the carbon pathway that we're currently heading along, um, the ice sheets are going to melt, they're going to get much smaller and sea level is going to go up. So we need to do something quickly, stop uh, putting carbon in the atmosphere, and uh, we should be right. You are very much involved now in trying to understand what the impact of those rising sea levels might be around around New Zealand. Can you tell me about that project that you're involved in? Yes, so I'm leading the New Zealand Sea Rise Program. It's an MB-funded project where we're looking at the amount that sea level will go up around New Zealand's coastline using the predictions that we're making from the Antarctic models, but then trying to understand how vertical land movement will also either make those uh, levels greater or smaller. Parts of New Zealand are actually going up as we speak today, millimetres per year, and so that actually slows down the amount of sea level rise. But there are other parts of New Zealand where the coastlines are subsiding or going down, and that will cause sea level to go up faster than other parts of the world. So that's what the program's trying to do, is figure out how our dynamic coastline and global sea level rise will uh, interact. I mean, in some parts of, of New Zealand, regardless of what happens to the ice sheets, regardless of what happens to um, sea level um, globally, sea level will go up or down just because of the way our, our land is moving. So where's a good place to be in New Zealand? Where's not going down? A good place to be in New Zealand? Well, New Zealand's got lots of great places to be, but <laughs> away from the coast is my recommendation to most people. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but, um, you know, Several metres above current day sea level is, is a place to be, but there are parts of the country, parts of Bay of Plenty, that are actually going up faster than the rate of sea level rise today um, because of tectonic motion. And I guess if you want to uh, buy property and avoid the short-term impacts of sea level rise, that might be a place to go. So what happens with this information? You're collecting it, you're modelling it, you're trying to predict things. How's it going to be used? We're producing estimates of sea level rise uh, using probabilities and uncertainty and when we start talking that way to, to people who are trying to make these hard decisions about where you might be able to build or not uh, they want to know a, an exact number they want to know how much sea level will rise by 2050, by 2060 and it's, a, it's not exact, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in those predictions so trying to translate that knowledge to uh, policymakers is not an easy thing the best we can do is provide the, the most robust up to date science and then work with social scientists work with policymakers to try to make that information useful. Trying to convey that to people on the street to say, you know, it could be this much, it could be that much, it's a bit frustrating, but that's really as, as good as we can do at this point. So if you were to put rough figures on it, say looking forward 100 years, mm. on average around New Zealand, what, what amount of sea level rise might we be looking at? And I understand it's not a single figure that mm. that's a range. No, I think the best estimates without vertical land movement are anywhere between 50 centimetres and 1.4 metres. Uh, by 2100. But perhaps the largest uncertainty is how much carbon we'll end up putting into the atmosphere. Now, New Zealand's government has just passed the Zero Carbon Act, which is a great step forward, um, and, and it sort of aims to, to keep us to those lower, those lower numbers, the sort of 60 centimetres. But actually achieving that is, is very difficult. The largest uncertainty really is, I, I think, in, in what people decide to do with CO2 as a pollution. 
You know, if we really can crack that nut and um, reduce putting CO2 into the atmosphere, then we'll keep the amount of sea level to the lower end, to that sort of 60 centimetres. But regardless, we're going to have to deal with some amount of sea level rise. Uh, That's the reality. Um, And in places like Wellington, where 30 centimetres can make a big difference to uh, the coastline, you know, we've already got to start planning for that now, regardless of of what we do with uh, future carbon dioxide emissions. Thanks, Richard. Richard Levy is with GNS Science. And a big congratulations to the Melting Ice and Rising Seas team for winning the 2019 Prime Minister's Science Prize. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. Michelle Dalrymple is the first maths teacher to win the Prime Minister's Science Teacher Prize. Michelle is Mathematics and Statistics faculty head at Kashmir High School in Christchurch. She says every student deserves a champion, and she's devoted to sharing her research and knowledge with other teachers as well. I ask her where her inspiration comes from. My own teachers currently, my own teachers from the past, academics in terms of their research and what they do in the classroom, various people who put out podcasts, friends where we'll just have lunch and teach a geek out together for hours and, yeah, wide variety of different areas where I get inspired from. Yeah. So what do you think the kids that you teach need to know? In terms of content, they need enough background content to be mathematically and statistically literate to cope with the real world. Things like your basic budgeting, understanding your health outcomes, being able to read media reports critically and evaluate that sort of thing that's coming at them from lots of different directions. But probably the more important side of it is that they need to know that they can do maths and stats when they need to because often our students come into us with that anxiety and that fear and we want them to have positive experiences with us to have success, to enjoy coming to class and enjoy learning so that when or if they need to pick it up later to do whatever their dreams are, those fears and anxieties aren't going to go, no, I can't do that because I've got to do more maths. Where do you think those fears and anxieties come from? Oh, that's a tough question. Society seems to think at times it's okay to say, I don't have a maths brain, which I've still never found the right response to that when a parent says that at parent-teacher interviews. It's tough. I don't know. We have it in the media often at times, in all the movies and television programs that can sometimes come through as that fear of maths and it's okay to say I don't do maths and it's not cool to do maths. So yeah, a lot of different aspects. So how do you engage someone who arrives in your classroom a bit reluctant to engage with maths? What do you do with them? Relationships is probably what underpins my teaching philosophy, it's who I am as a teacher and I don't think I can ask a student to relax and feel comfortable and want to learn to take risks and make mistakes unless they trust me and they know I care about them and I want them to do really well. My students know I will never give up on them so for a student to come into a class who might already have those anxiety levels setting up that trust at the start of the year and developing those relationships is super important. The other side of it, of course, is the curriculum. We try really hard to start the year, especially with tasks where they will succeed, with units where we know they'll be successful and develop that whole 
plan across the year so that they know they can do it and we've got time to build on their learning and build their confidence. Now, this next question is to do with the fact that you can tell I don't have teenage kids at school. So <laughs> at, at what point does maths stop being a compulsory subject and become something that you have to choose to do? It does vary from school to school. At Kashmir and most schools across New Zealand, maths is still compulsory at year 11. But it does vary. And then after that, it, they have to opt into it? They have to opt into it, but if you looked at our typical Year 12 statistics class, you'd have at least half the class who are doing the subject because they either had no choice or their parents made them. So it's not really optional from their perspective. So is a good thing to do in terms of teaching, and I'm thinking particularly statistics at this point, to make it meaningful to the kids in their own day-to-day -day lives? Oh, for sure. And my goal with that Year 12 statistics class is to bring all those reluctant learners on board and they end up enjoying the subject. You know, some of those best moments are the conversations with the students in the corridors where they'll start by going, I never thought I'd like the subject. I only took it because I had to and I'm really enjoying it. And they're doing yeah. it again the next year. So, yeah, we do what we can to pull both real, meaningful, important statistics from their life, as well as the humour and the quirk and the fun, so that they're engaged in their learning in other ways as well. Do you find that lots of kids go, I, well, I don't need to know that because I could just look it up or I could just calculate something on the computer if I need to know? No, we don't get that much. Statistics has really moved with technology from actually, it used to be old school drawing graphs by hand and you'd spend so much time trying to figure out how to draw it that you'd never actually have a chance to see what the data was telling you. And now we use technology to look at all that data and can just run straight into, well, what's it telling us? What's that story going on behind the data? So in that sense, it's powerful and we're trying to make the most of it. You'll have an occasional student that'll go, look, miss, look what this app will do for me. And then you'll go, OK, well, explain why. That's not going to help you long term if you don't understand actually why it's doing that. So is one of the important things that you want to send people out into the world who are willing to question what they're being told, like not take things at face value, but go, actually, does this make sense? And mm. can I question it? And can I come at it another way and work out whether what I'm being told is making sense or whether actually I think it's a load of nonsense? So they've got a set yeah. of tools they can go into the world, but oh, they definitely. also have a questioning mind. Definitely, definitely. And so around that statistics, we try to teach them a set of skills. We talk about all the different sampling methods and the survey methods and things like leading questions and critiquing reports in the media. And there's some amazing ones that are so much fun to pull to pieces in class. And we also, one of the aims for our Year 13 statistics course is to make sure no one buys from infomercials so that they understand those sales pitches and the wonderful anecdotes that come through in those ads. It's great fodder, great fodder. What does winning the Prime Minister's Teaching Prize mean to you? It's a huge honour and quite humbling because I know that there's a whole lot of other amazing maths and stats teachers across New Zealand. For me, it's a recognition of all the hard work and everything I do in my teaching profession, not just in my classroom, but with my awesome faculty and all the teachers I've worked with in Canterbury and across New Zealand. I do what I can to sort of, through those teachers, help students' outcomes wherever possible.
So it sounds like you're forever challenging yourself too um, and trying to learn new skills and new uh, things that you can take into the classroom. I think I'd be a classic lifelong learner. I don't know quite where teacher Michelle and Michelle stops. Um, I'll be in the garden on the weekend listening to a podcast and go, oh, that would be really good for class. I need to go hunt that out further and find it. I'll be listening to the radio on the way home. Radio New Zealand has some great stuff that we pick up for class, all their surveys and experimental reports that they come up with that we then follow up through and present to class. And I don't quite know where those boundaries are for me. It's just who I am. I have the best job in the world and I love it. Thanks, Michelle. That was Prime Minister Science Teacher Prize winner Michelle Dalrymple. 17-year-old Christchurch school student Thomas James has won the Prime Minister's 2019 Future Scientist Prize. Thomas is a Year 13 student at Burnside High School and he has designed Wheelie Drive, which I've also heard called Binbot, which is a robot to take your wheelie bin out to the curb. Congratulations, Thomas. When you started this project, did you have any idea it was going to end up with a Prime Minister's Science Prize? No, not really. I started off the project kind of just trying to help out and try solve a problem in the community and had no idea that it could come this far. Did you have anyone particular in mind or did you just notice people struggling with those big wheelie bins? It kind of started off as a project to help my elderly neighbour who was struggling to take her bins out to the curbside to the point that her doctor told her that she shouldn't be taking them out because there's too much of a risk of her falling. And my grandparents, who don't use their wheelie bins at their house because it's too much of an inconvenience to take it down their long driveway because they live on a farm. And they also own a batch. And they don't use their wheelie bin at the batch because there's no one there to bring it back in once they leave. So it's kind of all these kind of things kind of floating around in my mind. And then you start doing a bit of research and talking to some people out there, talk to people at Age Concern, and they're... So this is a real problem that they face. So that's kind of where the idea kind of came from, yeah. So you better tell us exactly what is this thing that you've designed and what does it do? You've given us some hints there, so tell yeah. it, describe what it does. I've created a robot that autonomously takes your wheelie bins out to the curbside for you. And you don't need to be involved, it'll just do it on its own? Yeah, so the idea is that uh, no matter your situation, it will just take it out for you, so... You can set it up on a timer if that's going to be what's most convenient for you. You can set it up to, so you can set it off from your smartphone if you forget to take your bins out or whatever's going to suit your situation. So this is something you obviously wanted to work with existing bin collection methods. Absolutely. There's no point in creating a robot that people can't use. <laughs> <laughs> so when you started looking into this, is there anything else like this out there? What I first found when I started on the project wasn't much. There's existing services that councils provide, so you can apply for assistance in taking your bin out. And there's a put-back program that I found in the Coromandel where you, you can pay for your bin to be taken back up to your house, but it's cost for the council and it's not widely accessible. So there's kind of looking into the technology route there wasn't much available when I started, but later on there was a guy in the US, no, UK, US, I can't quite remember actually. Um, he's created a system which does a similar, similar thing to what I, my one does, except he's had to make his own bin pretty much. <laughs> so existing systems require modification to the bin, 
which is quite a large expense and something that uh, talking to waste management they wanted to avoid. So would you have described yourself as a technology geek before you started this project? Well, I have been doing projects like this for a while now and it is a bit of a passion of mine. Um, I don't actually take uh, any digital technology subjects at school. However, I do do this in a bit of my spare time, so potentially. So you already had a bit of the know-how in in your sort of self-taught technology. So how did you go about actually pulling this thing together? Yeah, so lots of it is uh, learning as you're going, uh, using the internet and searching up things to find help, but also going and asking for help when you need it. So going and seeing teachers at school saying, hey, I've got this problem, what do you recommend I do? Or where, where can I go to get help? Or what website should I use to teach me how to do this? And it's just that asking people where to help and then doing the research and putting the time in yourself to learn what you need to, to learn to be able to do it. And you ended up with something that works. Does, where does it work? Does it work at your house? Yeah, so the idea is that the route is programmed in based on the user's driveway. And once it's set up, the first time it gets saved onto a SD card and that gets put into the robot and the robot can follow that route wherever. So the route can be quickly programmed for whatever driveway it needs to operate on. And is this an all-terrain vehicle? Because I'm thinking if your grandparents live on a farm, they likely will have a long gravel driveway, for example. So would it work on gravel? Yeah, so they do have a long gravel driveway, which is one of the uh, inconveniences with a using your wheelie bins and it's also got potholes and stuff so one of the things to work on going forward is to have it a little bit more all-terrain currently the some of the especially the dolly wheels on it aren't quite the best for larger stones and potholes so you've designed something that's a good first iteration but you've got a bit more refining to do obviously absolutely there's a few things that would need to be improved before it would be able to work on gravel but the main structural design was based off the potential for it to be able to work on rougher uh, all-terrain situations. Did you have any failures along the way? Yeah, so there's lots of times where you're going along and then you kind of hit a dead end and you're kind of like, hmm, this isn't working. (laughs) To rethink, so especially with the navigation, uh, trying to find a way of reliably navigating the robot and the wheelie bin to get to the curbside and with enough accuracy that the bin ends up on the curb, because you've got a little bit of leeway, but not too much leeway in terms of where the bin needs to end up, because it can't be like two metres back from the road, and it can't be in the middle of the road, so it kind of has to work. So there's lots of ideas that I had to th- I throw around, and I'd start start moving along, and then you kind of hit a dead end, like, oh, this isn't working. But overall, you enjoyed the process? Yeah, it was a great process, blowing up some important components and trying to get them working together again at the last minute and stuff but lots of fun and where are you going to take the wheelie bin thing are you going to keep working away at it or are you going to give it to someone else to develop what's the story with that i don't know it's a bit of a in the air at the moment it's one of those things that i'd love to keep developing it but i've been working on it for a couple of years now and i think i might take a little bit of time away from it a bit of a think about it and just keep it in the back of my mind thinking through ways I can improve it. I've already kind of got a little bit of a list going on my phone and just come back to it and say, hey, this is the technology's evolved a bit further now. 
some of the technologies that I'm looking at that are still the kind of big companies have kind of got locked down a bit because it's not quite like cutting edge, but cutting edge and I don't have access to that sort of stuff. So maybe a year down the track, I might be able to say, hey, this is now more accessible. I can push what this can do. Thanks, Thomas. Thomas James has won the Prime Minister's Future Scientist Prize. The Prime Minister's 2019 McDiamond Emerging Scientist Prize winner is University of Auckland physicist Miro Urkuntalo. He's made pioneering contributions towards the development of new laser technologies. And a Tuhoi astronomer who's raised awareness about the significance of Matariki is the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize winner for 2019, Rangi Matamua from Waikato University. Rangi and Mero have both been on Our Changing World before, and there are links to those interviews on our webpage. You can find longer versions of tonight's interviews on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you'd like to get in touch, we are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science, and you can email us at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Many thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.